Let's pray. Our holy God, come to you this morning asking that you would help us to rightly know you, that we would rightly understand you, that you part waters, you make sun stand still, you heal the lame, you bring sight to the blind, you bring life to dead hearts. There is nothing that you can't do. And so forgive us if we show up this morning to your word thinking, not sure if there's much profit for me today. Oh God, would you meet with us? And would we be overwhelmed with the truth that when it looked like there was no hope for your people, there's always hope because of the adjective, yours. And you can do all things, including make and keep a people for yourself. And so would you encourage your people this morning and would you add to your people, we pray, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One pastor read the headline from the Telegraph in London. And this is what it said. Hero military veteran, 88 years old, declares fear is not in my dictionary as he saves woman from five knife-wielding robbers. The article goes on to state an 88-year-old military veteran has been praised for his extraordinary bravery after fighting off of a gang of robbers to rescue a young woman from being mugged. John Nixon, a widower, trained as a commando in, 19, in the 1940s, fought in the Korean War. In fighting off this gang, he was cut in his head and on his hands after he karate chopped one of the knife-wielding attackers to the ground in northwest London. He said he stepped in to help after seeing the group of youth grab at the woman's handbag before being slashed with what he described as some small pocket knife. Mr. Nixon said, my initial thoughts were to divert their attention away from the girl who was screaming. I shouted, leave her alone, he told the newspaper. But they turned to me and said, we'll take your money instead. And I said, oh, no, you don't. John Nixon goes on to say, kids this age are full of bravado. And yet they weren't expecting a surprise when they encountered an 88-year-old man. He said, my training kicked in. I landed a blow to his neck, which rendered him semi-conscious. This is a real article. <laughs> I disabled one of them, but another one pulled out a knife, so I had to try to deal with him too. And speaking of his bravery, Mr. Nixon said, fear is simply not in my dictionary. And so we find our way in the back half of Exodus chapter 2, and it would appear that fear is likewise not in Moses' dictionary. As he has opportunities to intervene and to protect others. And yet, though Moses was God's appointed deliverer, he had a lot of courage. But what we'll see in Exodus chapter 2, the back half, is that courage isn't enough. 
Having courage is not enough. You see, with all his courage, Moses was not ready to lead God's people. And I trust this morning that some of us need to be reminded of this truth. As you're staring down hardship in your life, as you're considering the afflictions that are upon you, as you think about your suffering and you think about your trials, maybe you think, well, I just need courage. But courage in dark days is not enough. Some of the bravest people I know are some of the most hopeless when trials come. And so what do you believe you need when your days of darkness are upon you? Well, the book of Exodus opens amidst some of the darkest days for the people of God. We've seen this over the last chapter and a half. God's people are in Egypt as God led them there in order to find relief from a famine. God's people will then grow to find themselves being oppressed and they're in slavery. They are enslaved for four centuries, 400 years. And yet all the while, the oppression is getting heavier and heavier. They are growing and multiplying and increasing just as God had called them to do. And so Pharaoh begins to grow insecure about this. And so he comes up with a plan. How is, it that we, how is it that we decrease their influence and their number? And so he enslaves them, and that doesn't work. And then he orders Hebrew midwives to kill Hebrew males that are born when they are born. But these midwives obey God instead of listening to Pharaoh. Pharaoh then orders all of Egypt to participate in killing Hebrew boys and really, you get to the end of chapter 1, and you're left with this question, does God even care? While the scene on the stage of human eyesight seems dark and empty, we turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we find that as the author just lifts back the corner of the curtain, we can begin to see that God is at work behind the scenes. And chapter 2 opens with this stunning birth and then deliverance of this one who God would choose to deliver his people. Moses is born. Moses is hidden. Moses then is set upon the waters in a small ark and God delivers and rescues him from death through the compassion of the most unlikely of people, Pharaoh's own daughter. And we read Exodus chapter two and we just, there's something spectacular about this child. There's something unique. God's hand is upon him. And so the story seems, you, you end chapter 1 and it's very dark. And then you get to the beginning part of chapter 2 and you're thinking, there's hope. Well, what's going to happen next? A question for us from this passage is, is it possible to have hope in your hardest of afflictions? Is it possible for you to find hope? Is there a basis of hope amidst your trials and your circumstances? And if so, what is that? And I trust that our passage this morning will give us two reasons where we can answer the question, yes, there is hope, even in the darkest of trials, even if the hardest of afflictions are upon us. The first thing that we see is God prepares his deliverer. God prepares his deliverer. 
And really, this is the bulk of Exodus chapter 2. It's, it's, it's verses 11 through 22. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read this again, and, and I want you to think about how God is preparing his deliverer. And just watch the ways in which God is sparing no expense in order to make sure that the one whom he has called is ready for such a task. The word of God says this, beginning in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he said, surely this matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water the father, their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Then, he, then they came to Ruel, their father, and, said, why have, and he said, Why have you come back so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and he watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you've, not, why is it that you've left this, the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter, Zipporah, to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The baby who was in the basket in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is now grown up. One of the best interpreters, one of the best commentaries on the Bible is the Bible. And so there are two passages that really help us understand what's happening, maybe even behind the scenes here in Exodus chapter 2. Those two passages would be Acts chapter 7. We referenced it last week, Stephen's sermon before he is stoned to death. And Hebrews chapter 11. And both of those passages help us understand the details surrounding Moses. In Acts chapter 7, right before he's stoned for his faith, Stephen's sermon helps us learn about this time in Moses' life. Verses 22 and 23. Stephen preaches and he says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And so what we know then about Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, is that Moses is about 40 years old. 40 years old. He was born to enslaved Hebrew parents, but he's raised in Egyptian royalty. He speaks and dresses and acts Egyptian. But there seems to be this conflict that is brewing and waging war inside him. And verse 11 helps us understand that. It says, Moses went out to his brethren. Went out. It's the same phrase that we'll see used in Exodus chapter 12 when God's people go out from Egypt. It's also, it's also the phrase in which we get the title of this book, Exodus, a coming out of. 
And so this God's chosen deliverer is leaving Pharaoh well before God's people leave Pharaoh and leave Egypt. And two times in verse 11, we read this distinction about the Hebrews referred to as his brethren, his brothers. And so you see this identification. Moses is reaching this age where he says, I am no longer identifying with Pharaoh in Egypt. I am going to identify with God and my people. And maybe the question that you would ask is why in the world would anybody leave such a lavish lifestyle? Why would anybody leave the palace and go and identify with slaves? Again, this is where Hebrews chapter 11 is helpful. Verses 24 through 26, this is the explanation that we're given. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Rather, choosing rather to endure ill ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the, the passing pleasures of sin. Did you get that? choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to that reward. You begin to see Moses is a man motivated by faith saying, there's not enough that this earthly kingdom can give me than to belong to to my God, to be a part of his people and for him to be my God. And if you're you're a follower of Christ, this is your story. And this is a great opportunity for followers of Jesus to consider. Is that really what your heart desires most? Are we willing to say no? Sorry, my voice is in and out. Are we willing to say no? to the things of this world so that we can lay hold to the greatest treasure, that which satisfies our soul. There has been nothing on earth that's been created that will give you more pleasure than God himself. And Moses lays hold of that. And he's willing to endure slavery as long as he can get his God. Christians make personal sacrifices day in and day out so that we may gain a greater reward. He leaves the palace digs for the labor camps full of slaves. And some of us need to hear this this morning. Some of you children need to hear this this morning. Some of you adults need to hear this this morning. Following Christ is not just about saying, I'm going to stand with God's people one or two days a month. Following Christ is not only saying, I'm going to have one moment in my life where I was dunked underwater. No, you ought to gather with God's people more than once or twice a month. You ought to be baptized in obedience. But identifying with Christ, following Christ is saying no to this world, being willing to bear the reproach of Christ, And being willing to walk away from being cool and accepted by this world so that you can lay hold of the greater treasure and reward that is God himself. Like, Does that describe your Christian life? I pray that it would. I pray that we would be stirred up to aim for the greatest reward. And if it doesn't, I pray that you don't leave here defeated. I pray that you leave here convicted and led to repentance.
so that we wouldn't waste our lives on that which doesn't satisfy. And on this day, Moses goes out and he looks upon the slave labor of his people. And that phrase doesn't mean that he walked out and one day was like, I had no idea this was happening. Look, no one told me. No, that phrase is the same phrase that's used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he was moved with compassion. Because he saw the crowds and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Moses goes out and he looks with emotion. He's filled with sympathy and empathy. And what does he witness in that moment? He witnesses an Egyptian unjustly beating a Hebrew. And he, he, he really arrives at a crossroads of sorts. He looks around. He looks this way and he looks that way. It's like, what, what's he looking for? Is he looking to see if another Hebrew is going to intervene? Is he looking to see if an Egyptian is watching? We don't know. But Moses intervenes. And so it's commendable that he is moved by compassion for his brothers, uh, his brethren, his brothers. And yet while that being moved with compassion for the suffering of others is commendable, the way he goes about addressing that is not. What will he do in light of that? I agree with the overwhelming majority of scholars that this was murder and it was wrong. Moses appears to know, based on the text, that it was wrong. There's no reason to conceal something if it's not wrong. And so what does Moses do? He kills this Egyptian, and then he digs a hole, and he buries the body in the sand. And again, we're just thinking, this is God's chosen deliverer. And it's helpful for us to remember that God's chosen deliverer is going to have to be moved with compassion for his people. But God's chosen deliverer cannot take matters into his own hands. And we just see he's not ready to lead. This was not God's way for how Moses would deliver God's people. And we'll see that same rashness flare up multiple times, even in one instance that keeps Moses from entering into the promised land. He strikes the rock in anger as opposed to speaking to it as God had told him. And so what Moses needed to learn is that while he's an instrument used of God to deliver, God himself is the deliverer. And all of God's ways of deliverance will make clear who the true deliverer is. God was not interested in sharing glory with Moses. In fact, there wasn't any to be shared with Moses. Moses was unworthy of that glory. God was worthy of it all. And so passion isn't enough if you say, I just want to be used by God. I've got a ton of zeal. Let me go and take on the world. Praise God for that. But godly character is needed to know how to harness that good zeal for God's glory. And so the very next day, Moses goes out and he finds two Hebrews and they're fighting. And Moses seeks to provide some leadership to them. And so he goes and he approaches them and he tries to resolve this conflict. And in this interchange, what's shocking to Moses is that he realizes that when he looked left and looked right, and what we think the text seems to imply is that no one was around. 
but now word has gotten out. I, I can almost hear this guy as Moses approaches him saying, why have you struck this man? For this guy to say, oh, okay, Moses is coming down. Moses, you leave your palace for 10 minutes. You come out here. You think you can be a judge over me? Oh, I better be careful, Moses. You may do to me what you did to the man yesterday. The cynicism. And that begins. We began just even to see this thread that will run throughout the book of Exodus. Those that God is preparing Moses to lead reject his leadership over and over again. And, and I can understand why potentially this was hated. Think about what would have happened. Uh, where is so-and-so? I, I imagine the conversation in the Egyptian camps. Where's so-and-so? Well, he was in charge of this group of slaves. Well, we've not seen him. Well, let's go ask the Hebrews. Hebrews, where's so-and-so? I, well, we, we don't know. Well, until you do know. My sanctified imagination, I can see how this would have potentially pushed Israel down all the more. And again, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, Moses, why the hero complex? Like, why, why, why do you keep standing up trying to defend and, in your own way? And, and what is it that you're after? And again, Acts chapter 7 helps us understand, verse 25. And it says that Moses supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. Somewhere along the way, Moses had confirmation that God was preparing him to deliver God's people. And somewhere along the way, Moses thought that God's people knew that as well. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And so what we find, yet again, Moses not ready to lead God's people. And so God will determine the best course of action. God cares about his people. God cares about his purposes too much to allow them to carry on in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own timetables, and in our own agendas. And so Pharaoh gets wind of this murder, and he puts a bounty on Moses' head. And verse 15 tells us that Moses then flees his adoptive, bloodthirsty superpower of a granddad. And he goes to Midian. And I'm thinking, why Midian? And where is Midian? And Midian is in the Sinai wilderness. And he encounters a new people of Midianites. They were distant relatives of the Hebrews. Throughout the Old Testament, we'll find some of the Midianites were friends and true worshipers of God. Others were not. And upon arriving in Midian, the text tells us that Moses sat down at a well. Sat down is the same word there, to, to live. He dwelled at a well. What a dramatic change in this man's life. He's all alone. He's in a foreign land. There's a contract out for his life in Egypt. And he has an uncertain future effort as a refugee. And Moses would never forget this day that Exodus chapter 2 tells us about. 
we're introduced to a priest who's named Ruel. A few chapters later, we'll find he's better known as Jethro. Maybe you're thinking that's not a better name. (laughs) Ruel, Jethro had seven daughters. And on this day, they went to the well to draw water in order to satisfy their father's flocks. And yet on this day, what we find are shepherds. Part of my sermon preparation this week is I YouTube Charlton Heston fighting the shepherds. I would commend that after the service and watch the movie from the Ten Commandments, how Charlton Heston just pow, pow, used both ends of the staff. Uh, we don't know if he used a staff. But on that day, Moses not only served them in defending them, he also served them in drawing water for them. And again, we're thinking, man, that's a different response. The impulse of this chosen deliverer, he wants to protect. And where he murdered the Egyptian, he came to the rescue of these Midianite ladies. Jethro gets word, Ruel gets word about this, invites Moses over for a meal, a place to live, and even a wife, one of his daughters, Zipporah. And God will be gracious to Moses and Zipporah, give them a son whose name is Gershom. And I think the naming of the son helps us understand a little bit about where Moses' heart is. How how is it that he sees everything that's unfolding? Gershom means a sojourner in a foreign land. All the hurt that's unfolded in Moses' life has brought him to this place. And he doesn't feel like he's at home. I mean, he, feel like, he feels like he is walking through, passing by. Moses finds himself where he never anticipated that he would be when he went out to look upon their burdens that day. He's failed as a prince in Egypt. He isn't the deliverer of God's people. He's alienated from Egypt. He's alienated from his people. He's a, fur, a foreigner in a far-off land. And all the while, God is training him. The impulse could have been for Moses like what it often is for us. Lord, get me out of the hardship. And yet we find God is working something in Moses through the hardship. And perhaps you're here this morning. You're unexpectedly sitting by some obscure well in what seems to be a no-name place like Midian. You might not be living where you thought you would live. You might not be doing what you anticipated. Somewhere along the way, you can look and you can see a breakdown has occurred in your plan. And you're wondering, what, God, are you doing? And maybe you're here, and if you were honest, you were just saying, I'm struggling to be content with a God who would do this to me. And all the while, Moses never perceived it. But God was at work. And it's often only when we look back do we begin to realize how his ways make sense. Puritan John Flavel put it this way, the providence of God, it's like Hebrew words. 
They can only be understood if you read them backwards. Impatient this morning at God's timetable? Are you impatient at his, at his processes? I would just encourage you then, remember Moses at Midian. You see, hardship humbles us, but in God's hands, hardships are always purposeful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the hardship that you're in is purposeful? Humility has a way of making us trust ourselves less. Humility has a way. Suffering has a way of making us trust God more. Humility prepares us to submit to God. And so some of you can look back over your life and you just think, my life is not what I thought it would be. It seems to have been just a trial and a struggle after another, after another, after another. And I get to the end and I don't have much to show for it. And yet you are being held up by your God through his spirit to where you can get to the end. Not, not you, don't, you don't own up to the difficulty, but you can get to the end of your day and say, I can still sing praise be to God. You've not left me. If that's your story, what a story. What a story to be held by God. Before Midian, Moses was self-willed and quick to act. After Midian, he's humbled. He's needing God's help. Studying this week, I just was reminded of failures, honestly, that I've, I've made throughout the years in, in parenting. When, when our daughters were younger, I can just remember depending on the force of my personality to control them. I could give a look, and maybe still can. I could give a look. I could speak in a tone. But then the older my girls got, just began to see, man, this is not about what my personality can control. I mean, this is about needing the Spirit of God to set up Lordship of Christ in their heart. And that's going to take more of God and less of me. And that's what, that's what the Lord is graciously doing to Moses. He's stripping away less. Uh, it's taken away Moses, taking a little bit more away from Moses. It's taken a little bit more, more away from Moses. God didn't need Moses' might. He didn't need Moses' planning. He didn't need Moses' agenda. He needed Moses' mouth. And just by having his mouth and his staff and his, the ability to raise his arms, God then would act. God's way is always the way of glory for himself. And Moses learned faith. Faith isn't the opposite of unbelief. Faith is the opposite of self-dependence. And so God's way is not the way of independence. Hey, check in with God every now and then and then go do your thing. No, God's way is the way of continual submission and reliance. And so whether you have 40 more minutes in this life or 40 days or 40 years, rest assured that God is teaching you his ways. And rest assured that you need to learn them.
And I just even see the Lord bringing Moses to this place, not throwing up his failures and saying, man, you blew it in Egypt. You'll never get another chance. Just the kindness of God, much like the way he restored Peter three times after Peter denied him three times. And so did you sin this week? Do you feel useless this week? Do you think, how could God use someone like you who said this or did that? If that's you, the gospel is good news for you. God saves by grace and he doesn't stop being gracious when his people fail. We're given Christ's righteousness. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the father is so pleased with the righteousness of Christ that when we fail, he doesn't disown us. Do you know that God loves you when you fail? Perhaps you need to be reminded that God loves others when they fail. And in all of this, you step back and you go, Moses, I was going to say Moses loses. And so I said, Moses, Moses loses a family. He loses a home. And yet what does God give him in Midian? A family and a home. And so to be sure, there are consequences for our sin. He is away from his adoptive family. And this whole chapter, it's this struggle of identity. Like, who is Moses? Is he Egyptian? Is he Hebrew? Is he this? Is he that? And it's back and forth. And you're thinking, well, who is Moses? But you get to the end of chapter 2, and what we're overwhelmed with is that the most important question is not who is Moses. But the most important question is who is God? And I just would encourage you, come back in two weeks as Bob preaches Exodus chapter 3 where we see this stunning answer where God says, hey, I now take center stage and I will make clear who I am. This chapter begins so hopeful. And then in a few days, he goes from a privileged family member in Egypt to a wanderer in the wilderness of Sinai. And so the question is, is there a basis of hope in our afflictions? And we can say first, God prepares his deliverer. Yes, God does not waste time. There's not a season that you have lived in, that you are living in, or that you will live in where you just would say, nothing is happening right now. God does not waste time. He uses even the most difficult of times to accomplish and carry out his purposes. And so hope seems to be gone. Moses has failed. He's sitting in Midian with another family. We will learn he's there for 40 years. And then all of a sudden we're taking, taken back to Egypt for the second point. God preserves his people. God preserves his people. We see this in verses 23 through 25. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice 
of them. And so the scene goes back to Egypt. There's a change of guard in, of guard in Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh coming into power. And yet what we find is with the change of guard, there doesn't come a change of circumstance. And so the people groan, the text tells us. They cry out for help because of their bondage. And so there seems to be no reason for hope back in Egypt. And actually everything is about to change. With this hopeless background, Moses draws our attention to something new. And that is that the people of God are crying out to God. They cry out to God. It's the first recorded cry for help in this book. And that cry came up to God. And so again, let me just remind you, there is purpose in your affliction, if for no other reason, to lead you to cry out to your God. To strip you of independence. To strip you of self-confidence. And to make you lean in on the one who is mighty and able. And you say, well, I, I just don't feel like I'm in a place where I can pray. Can I tell you what qualifies you to pray? Your need. Your need. Who has a need to pray? We all do. So lean into the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Your need for prayer is the best cause and reason for your prayer. You don't have to have a clean slate to pray. I'm just praying. I've been praying, Lord, would you help Covenant Life Church be devoted to prayer in dark days? And then if the clouds do part and the sun does shine, may we not neglect prayer as though we just needed it when we had affliction. This new development in Moses is intentionally directing our attention to God himself. One commentator put it this way, the exodus didn't come about simply because of the result of God's people being in trouble. It was because of prayer by God's people for rescue to the only one who could do anything about their miserable plight. And so again, saints, if you're a follower of Jesus, take heart this morning. Though your circumstances may not be as you would hope, and they may not even be as severe as slavery, but you may find yourself in a position where you feel like, I need God to move. One pastor, Philip Ryken, said, sooner or later, every Christian finds themselves in a situation where the only thing they can do is cry out to God. If you're there today, that's not a bad place to be. It may not be where you want to be. But because of the one who graciously hears prayer, it's not a bad place to be. There is hope. In verse 24 and 25, make clear that God himself is the only hope. I mean, this I, I've been walking through the book of Exodus I got to Exodus chapter 2, and everything about this book changed because of verses 24 and 25. Just the verbs. God has not been prominent, so it seems to the human eye in chapters 1 and 2, and you get to the end, and what do you have? Verse 24, God heard, and then God remembered. Verse 25, God saw. 
and God knew or God took notice of them. The central figure in the whole book takes the center stage in these last two verses. Exodus was not written so that we would have a lot of knowledge about Moses. Exodus was written so that we would be enthralled and we would encounter the God of Exodus. D.A. Carson puts it this way, in the most crucial events in all of redemptive history, God takes considerable pains to ensure that no one can properly conclude that these events have been brought about by human planning or human wit or human strength. But they have only come about by his means and for his glory. 430, 40 years of enslavement. So easy to think. He doesn't care. He's not listening. He can't see. He's forgotten. We're forgotten. And these verses reveal to us the character of God. These verses assure us of the heart of God. The time has come for the deliverance plan that has been in place from the beginning to be set into motion to the human eye. God remembers and he keeps and he acts to fulfill his promises. He sees, he hears your cries. He is the wiper of every tear. Your bed may be soaked with your tears. And yet God hears. And God will act. And you say, well, how do we know he will act? How do we know it's true? I see nothing that would make me believe that is true. We know because of what he has done. Most clearly in and through Jesus Christ. In Christ, God enters into the pain and the suffering of his creation by taking on flesh to deliver humans, to, to deliver those in need of grace from their sin. God remembering his covenant looks like an incarnation. It looks like a sinless life. It looks like a ministry that brings the kingdom of heaven down to earth. It looks like a crucifixion that accomplishes salvation for all God's people. It looks like a powerful resurrection from the dead. It looks like a glorious ascension that promises his return. God has not forgotten. And though you may not be able to see on the horizon how he's going to move and be faithful, you can look back and the argument from greatest to least, if he didn't spare his own son for your greater need, what makes you think? He's not going to come through for lesser. You may not be a Christian in here this morning. I would just plead with you. Trust that work of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. And, and maybe you're looking at this and you're saying, well, you know, Moses, okay, he's going to be a deliverer. But Moses wasn't really good. Well, Jesus is unlike Moses in a lot of ways. Jesus is like Moses in that he was rejected by his people. But unlike Moses, Jesus lays his life down for his enemies as opposed to taking their life. 
And unlike Moses, who tried to save himself in his own strength, Jesus comes in the power and the might of God in humility to save us from ourselves. And unlike Moses, who tried to save on his timetable, Jesus comes on God, the Father's timetable. And at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons, Jesus delivers his people. And the good news this morning is that you can be a part of having that work credited to your account because of the work of Jesus if you will turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in God alone. Would you talk to any of us? If you would say, I, just, I have more questions. I would like to do that. Please talk to any of us. God remembers his promises. He remembers his covenant. I, I talked to so many Christians who I think get this backwards. I was just reading Psalm 103, verses 12 and 13. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The longer you sit in your affliction, the easier it is to think God has forgotten his promises and yet he remembers my sin. When in fact, for the child of God, God never forgets his promises. And he graciously forgives as far as the east is from the west. Your sin, the enemy of your soul, reminds you that the things that you've confessed and forsaken, that your God remembers and that's why you are suffering. I just pray that we would be a church that regularly fights lies with truth. And so regardless of what well you're sitting by this morning, in the Midian-type season of your life, God hears you. And God remembers his covenant. And God sees you. And God knows you. God knows he's intimately involved with the details of your, of your pain, of your hardship. God's not done anything up to this point to save his people, but God has a plan. And so if the stage of your life seems bare and empty and dark, remember that behind the curtain, there is a God who sees and who hears and who knows and who remembers. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how long it will last. I don't know why he's doing what he's doing. I don't know why you've not experienced the relief that you've been pleading for. But I do know on the authority of his word that God knows. And when you cry out to him day after day and year after year, even if it's for a lifetime and you wonder where is he and what is he doing, he has not forgotten you. If you are in Christ, this promise is true of you and for you. If you are not in Christ, I would just plead, I don't know where in the world you find hope in difficult days than the God who promises to work all things out for good 
for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God hasn't missed your prayers. He hasn't closed his eyes. He hasn't stopped up his ears. And so that God sees, God hears, God remembers, and God knows. We get to the end of chapter 2, and man, it's pregnant with hope. There is so much hope. Yes, there are unanswered questions that still remain. The hope doesn't remove our pain. Your affliction, though, has a purpose. And though you don't know it now, someday you will. And your affliction has a timeline. And though you don't like it now, and perhaps it already seems too long, someday you will understand. And the Lord's going to make sense of it all for those that are in Christ because Jesus has guaranteed your exodus. And it's a far greater exodus than merely escaping from your affliction. There's coming an end to your sojourning in this land. There's a promised land that's far greater than even Canaan. And when you reach it, no matter what you've suffered in the veil of tears, you will have no regrets. God will have worked it all out for your good and you will wonder, why did I ever question his goodness? And so in your affliction, cry out to God for help. There is a basis for hope in your suffering. And it's that there is no time that is wasted because God always is preparing his people. And God is always keeping his people. I pray even in the sea of uncertainty, you can say to that truth, yes and amen. Let's pray.